Hello and welcome to Handel Hendricks Unlocked, a podcast from Handel Hendricks in London, in partnership with Art Fund. Welcome to another episode of Handel Hendricks Unlocked. This is a very exciting episode, as for this edition of the podcast, we spoke to bona fide legend, the punk poet laureate, the bard of Salford himself, Dr. John Cooper Clark. John wasn't able to join us in person, unfortunately. But we had him on loudspeaker in the Hendrix flat and had an amazing chat with him about his love of music, his autobiography, and about the time he actually tried to go and see Hendrix. The audio is slightly shaky, so apologies. But you join us with John talking about the music scene in Manchester when he was growing up. Were you really into that then, John, when you were back in Manchester or something? What the- that's our modern jazz blues crossover. Yeah. I was into it because, you know, Manchester was, uh, was always a big town for that kind of thing. It went back to, you know, even before the war, you know, place, the band on the wall, which is a well-known rock sort of yeah. thing. I've been, I've been there many times, yeah. You must have been, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that started out as a jazz venue, you know, before the war. Really? Is it uh, that old? Yeah, it was called something like the Georgian Dragon originally, but they uh, yeah. they they they, uh, they had a niche put into one of the into the, the far wall, you know, a load bearing wall. Yeah. And uh and a, and a small stage uh, installed. Yeah. And uh so it became known uh, colloquially as the band on the wall. Wow. That's but, the, uh, you know, some of the greats played there. So, yes, I, but in answer to your question, yeah, I, I was familiar with this sort of modern jazz blues crossover kind of genre mm. on account of, you know, uh, in the early days of my poetic career, there was, for some reason, there was a binary link in the public imagination. There was a between poetry and jazz. It was seen as part of the beatnik thing. Sort of you know, Alan, Gin- so, Alan Ginsberg so, type. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Jack Kerouac, yeah. Lawrence Burling Getty, um, Gregory Corso, you know, and, and to a lesser extent over here, people like, uh, I guess, Michael Horowitz and uh, Jeff Nuttall, you know, would have been the, uh, right. the purveyors of this stuff. But I was comparatively young, you know, I was much younger than those people. Yeah. <laughs> but it seemed to me the only venue that was amenable to poetry. Uh, was this uh, with these small jazz clubs? Yeah. So, I, so I, I did get for a person that isn't particularly interested in jazz. I have to say, <laughs> I've not. I've never been particularly. You know, I'm not a, an anorak about it. I, I've got my likes and dislikes. You know, and things yeah. like that. But I, I wouldn't say I was a jazz expert. So yeah. You know, but these places were the equivalent of Ronnie Scott, you know, in the, right. the Manchester equivalent of Ronnie Scott. So that, so that it was a broad church jazz place, you know, but it, so it had this beatnik vibe that I was anxious to sort of uh, find a place. It sounds uh, like, from, from what you're saying, Manchester had like a very active music scene even back then, because I think yeah, of it... Yeah, sure did, yeah. yeah. I think I think yeah, of it absolutely. as being being more like a late 70s, early 80s is when it's all kicked off in Manchester, but... Oh, no, it's always uh, it's always played host to any world-class uh, musical uh, event, you know, uh, you know, anything that went on tour, you know, Europeans. We, we've had them all, you know, we, we got them all in, you know, Oscar Peters and people like that. I mean, you know, I saw Ella Fitzgerald at the, I think it was at the Palace Theatre in Manchester, uh, people like that, you know, they all... They all uh, <laughs> and the blues 
packages. The blues package shows that were brought to this country by uh, in the sixties after sort of after the Stones when the Stones kind of uh, you know introduced this kind of music really to to uh, to, to uh, the people of this country. You know the Stones you, you can't talk them up enough in this regard. You yeah. know who'd heard of Howling Wolf and John Lee Hooker and Old Italy before the Stones? Not me. Yeah. But, uh, so, you know, we got to be very grateful for that. But after, after 1964, uh, Chris Barber started bringing, you know, your your original guys over, who were, many of whom were, you know, still alive. You know, people like, uh, I saw all of those people, you know, John Lee Hooker, Jimmy Reed, Johnny Lee, John, John Lee Hooker, Jimmy Reed, Howling Wolf, uh, all those guys. Wow. Sister Rosetta Fart, you know, people like this. Champion Jack Dupree, so all Hendrix. those guys, and we get into Jimi Hendrix here, aren't we? You know? Yeah, that's that's what I was well, leading on to. Yeah, they, they, well, it, Man- Manchester would would always be uh, <coughs> a natural for somebody like Jimmy to to do a show in. Uh, but the, the thing was, his choice of venue. I was a habitué of a by this time, it's about nineteen sixty six, sixty seven. When you know, Hey Joe, the first you know after he'd been on Ready Steady Go, it's the first time I'd seen him. Hey Joe. And, uh, and of course, everybody, you know, you see that guy, who was that guy? Huh? Check him out. You know, everybody was obviously, uh, you know, wow. I mean, Jimmy Hendrix, crikey, fantastic, isn't it? And, uh, and always was. You know, there's, you only get one chance to make a first impression and, uh, you know, Jim, crikey. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, his choice of venue was, was rather, uh, uh, I thought, incongruous. I was a habitué of all the clubs in Manchester, but mostly the uh, the Twisted Wheel. I was uh, I was I was big on kind of mm. you know American rare groove. My dad uh, often uh, often went to the Twisted Wheel. He tells me that. He? Yeah, he tells me about it a lot. He, he'd be the same age. Oh yeah, it's it, it, it's really one of those places that uh, you, you will never forget. Simply because you know, as I was saying before, you know, we, we that was the first time I ever heard that. Yeah, your actual James Brown. And I thought, well, what is this? You know, I mean, imagine hearing, you, you can't, you can't, can't possibly imagine how, uh, how, what, what a massive event that was. I mean, it was, it was almost up there with Elvis. But, you know, mm. it was just like, what is this? <laughs> it ain't gospel music and it's not really rock. Mm. So, you know, what is that? I mean, you know, well, it's just, I mean, crikey. <laughs> this is the period of night train and out of sight and tell me what you're going to do. Yeah. But anyway, he got equal impact from Jimmy. Yeah, was, was know, it a similar, a similar but, sort but, of... Uh, sorry, uh, 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 before, I, before I digress again, his choice of venue anyway wasn't the uh, Heaven and Hell or the Oasis or the Young Frau or the Twisted Wheel or any of those hit places. It was at this... Uh, place owned by the uh, Cooperative Society. Next to the CIS building, there's a kind of kid brother. Built at the same time, but not quite. At this time, the CIS building was the uh, the tallest building in Europe. But they had a kind of kid brother right next to it called the New Century Hall. But it's, you know, a lovely, a lovely modern building. Even now it looks kind of modern, even, you know, half a century later or so. But you know the building, it's uh, sort of in the style of uh, Philip Johnson. 
Yeah, wh- where is that in Manchester? Sorry. It's on there. It, it's, it's a corner of Manchester that's more or less monopolised by the cooperative society. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. It, they've got the big new shiny cooperative and then there's the smaller, older buildings, isn't there, across the road? But it's very, I've not, I don't know, I've not been around there for a Yes, I, I, I know, know what you mean. <laughs> I mean, I've seen the pictures of Jimmy Hendrix, even in 1966, and I've never seen him in a necktie. (laughs) Show me one picture of Jimmy in a necktie, I'll give you a thousand pounds. I've seen him wearing cravats, blood beads, St. Christopher medallions, several scarves all at once, but never a necktie. I can't prove this, but I reckon he'd do his nuts. I don't think it was on his recommendation that you were you weren't allowed in, John. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I can't. I can't imagine that being the case. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you get another chance to? Um... No, and then I never saw him. Then I saw. I never saw him live. No. Thanks very much, Cooperative Society. <laughs> Have you held a grudge against the cooperative <laughs> oh, ever absolutely. since? Absolutely. They put me on socialism for life. <laughs> 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 oh, 
That's why I'm the right wing maniac I am today. <laughs> I'd always wondered why that had happened. Yeah, yeah, I bet you did, yeah. <laughs> now it can be sold. I was, uh, I was just wondering. <laughs> I was, I was damaged. It damaged <laughs> me as a person. <laughs> Did you? Um, I was wondering if you. Can, a... I, can I? Can I? Am I a le- Does that make me a legitimate victim? Oh, for certain. Oh, thank God, I'm starting to feel really out of step. <laughs> <laughs> no, you definitely got uh, got a case credentials there. there. Yeah, that's my victim status established on the website. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you ever go to any of the other places he played? Is what I was wondering. I've got a list what of. What Jimmy played? In Manchester, yeah. He played at the Odeon, Bellevue, Union, the Palace Theatre, and uh, the Tabernacle Club. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, no. I was just I wondering if you. Work. Did you ever play any of those venues? Did I play them? Yeah, yeah. I did. I played the Palace. Yeah. In fact, I played the New Century Hall. Did you? You went back? Yeah, with the fall. Oh, wow. Yeah, me and the fall did it once. Nice. And I, but I also, yeah, I've done the Palace Theatre. Okay. So That's class. Now that's class. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, because that was a real sort of landmark for me, doing the Palace Theatre. Mm. The first gig I ever went to, the first show I ever went to in a theatre, in mm. 1958, I went to see Bob Hope. Oh, wow. At the Palace Theatre doing a stand-up show. Terrific. No, it's, it's I still... think that's where I got the bug. Yeah. <laughs> it's still going as, as a venue. It's a beautiful... Oh, it's gorgeous. What, the Palace? Yeah. It's beautiful, then. Beautiful place. Yeah, yeah. Really. I think James Brown did it, actually, towards the end of his life. Really? Yeah, I think, I think uh, my friend, the late, sadly, mm-hmm. the late Dougie James... Uh, had something to do with the promotion of it. Yeah, amazing, amazing venue. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was wondering, I, I've heard you say before, because you, you, you've you talked a lot there about the music in the 60s, and it seems like something you were really into. But how did you well, then... I was, into it. I was into music before the 60s, yeah. I mean, uh, I was, I've always loved... Uh, I mean, pre-rock and roll, I got my, my interest in, especially... Uh, American popular music, popular songs. Mm. Uh, I've been interested in that since the days of Perry Como and, you know, yeah. <laughs> Frank Sinatra. And was that a big you thing know. at home? Was, mu- was music a big thing growing up? Was it around? Yes, it, 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 it was, but, but, uh, but uh, sort of after 1957, you know, before that, you know, it was the radio. We, uh, you know, I, heard it, I heard, obviously, uh, you know, they played the American hits on the, on the radio. But, uh, you know, music came into our life when my uh, uncle Dennis was demobbed from the RAF. Right. And he moved in with he moved he, he moved in a, into our apartment for a while and uh, for his uh, record collection and his uh, his uh, record player with him. Nice one, so Uncle that, Dennis. Uh, so he, he had it all, you know, uh, all the pre rock and roll. Just, you know, he, he was just sort of just a little bit sort of seen as too old to be interested in Elvis. You know, I had to really? buy those records myself, but. Uh, but he did bring some good stuff, you know, Doris Day, Peggy yeah. Lee, Ella Fitzgerald, Sinatra, Nat King Cole, stuff like this. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and I, yeah, I love that stuff. I love that stuff. I, I just, yeah, great. And then uh, Elvis and 
wow. Mm. You know, all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Some people, it's better if you didn't see them. Some people, it's better if you didn't see them. If I'd have been, if I'd have seen Elvis, I I don't think I'd have been to another, I mean, you know, (laughs) I don't think I'd have gone to another gig after that. That's it, yeah. Anything of that would be like an anti-climax, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Being so associated with the punk scene, I wouldn't have thought that you would have loved those things and those types of music so much. How come you felt such an affinity with punk, if you did feel an affinity with it? Oh, yeah, I certainly did, yeah. Um, I I think really, upon first hearing the Ramones, the Ramones. Uh, to me, that was a, it, was, it. It wasn't. It wasn't a new thing. It was like a return for the core values of uh, of rock and roll, really. That I considered to be, you know, it played to the strengths of the genre rather than the diversifying that had gone before it. You know, with bands like, you know, unspeakable, you know, John Hyson's Coliseum, Genesis, Pink <laughs> <Yeah>. Floyd, <laughs> you know, all that. You know, to me, that's. I don't know what it is. It's not for me. Yeah. <laughs> not, you know, it just ain't for me. I, I, don't, I don't get it. Yeah. Where's the payoff? Where's the payoff with music like that? It's just, a, you know, squandering your time listening to it, really. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, you know, you put Elvis on, it changes the mood of the, of the entire house. Yeah. You know, it's like, Two minutes ago, it was like this. You know, you put Elvis on it. It's the only thing that matters in life. Yeah. <laughs> is that song there being sung by that guy. That's a nice one. It's the most important thing in the world right now. Yeah. Very few people can command, uh, can command a person's imagination to such a degree, I've found. A force of nature, and I, I got a similar sort of vibe. I've got to say, from the Ramones, you know what I mean? They're, they're you know, uh, quick songs over very quickly, you know, real fast, very melodic. You know, I loved it, I, I, and I, I love his voice. I love the vocal quality of Joey Ramone. is is adorable. It's, it's, it's so attractive, and the songs are great. You know, the songs that Dee Dee wrote. Just stand the test of time. There, uh, they're as good as anybody's songs. Something like Fifty Third and Third, and, uh, uh, and the one uh, Chinese Rocks. He wrote that. And what, yeah. what a great song! I think every age group has, has, like has the miserable has the miserable life of the of the irredeemable drug addicts been better expressed. <laughs> <laughs> but they keep coming back the Ramones don't like every age group likes they, they, they the they, they, they've never been out of date because no. they were never new in the first place yeah they just they just get under your skin straight away there's nothing uh, you wonder you, you hear those Ramones you understand it straight away they're like uh, they're like the Beach Boys but they're exactly the same as the Beach Boys yeah <laughs> they push the same buttons as the Beach Boys just that they live in Queens rather than on a beach. (laughs) (laughs) Is that where the Beach Boys lived? (laughs) (laughs) On the beach. I like to think so. (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm suing Brian Wilson under the trade description of that. (laughs) (laughs) 
And um, was the punk scene funny? That's what I wanted to ask. Well, that's what I, I think it was. I was think it? it was. I think there's a great deal of wry humour uh, mm. in, uh, in, in the punk scene. I mean, you know, the, take the Ramones again. You know, they, they bring out, a, there's a name for this. When you, when you correct yourself in a, in a later poem or a later work of art, where you refer back and correct something that you've already said, I can't remember what it's called. I wrote it down. Now I can't find a bit of paper. I wrote it down on, but it's—I uh, do it a lot. And uh, uh, the Ramones did it with uh, they had a they had a uh, single out called uh, "Now I Want to Sniff Some Blue," and uh, and then they brought out a, a record, uh, "Carbona," <laughs> "Carbona," not glue. <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be healthy is it no it's not meant to be anything to do with virtuosity <laughs> or any of that shit and of course that's what punk's all about isn't it it, mm. it disproves that sort of the idea that virtuosity is everything although i will say this you know it, it, it was it wasn't entirely true i mean steve jones has always been a fantastic guitar player you know, if ever there was a guitar hero, it was Steve Jones. I went to see the Sex Pistols after reading a review in the Musical Express. You know, it's a very short review, early doors, you know, and I read this, there's a picture of Johnny, and I thought, well, <laughs> crikey. <laughs> what a thing. <laughs> he was kind of a new kind of handsome. So I, was, I became very interested in the Sex Pistols, and so I thought, I, I, I'm going to see them when they when they uh, arrive in Manchester. And, then, and he said in the in the review that, uh, that, that they can't play and all this, you know, and we, uh, a myth which they went out of their way to foster themselves, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, nobody, nobody said it more often than Jonesy. Yeah. In fact, even even used to say, you know, that wasn't me. That was Chris Steading on the record and things like that. But no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. I can't believe it went to such lengths <laughs> to disprove his own virtuosity. <laughs> I went to see him and I thought, well, I was looking for the other ninety-nine guitar players. He was like a one-man orchestra. Sensational, still is. I bet mean, he's even better now. Mm. Steve Jones, guitar hero. 
That's interesting. Appreciate him while he's alive. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Steve Jones. <laughs> Fucking sensational. So did you, um, could you sort of, is that how you found your niche in that scene? You Were you on the Well, yeah, there was a, yeah, there was a general interest in uh, in lyrics anyway uh, in the punk days, wasn't it? You know, they wanted to, you know, they were, you know, they were a little bit social, uh, you know, a bit controversial, obviously. So there was a, there was a general, <coughs> unusually in, uh, for a pop phenomenon, they were uh, they were interested in lyrics, and I always say, you know, uh, nobody ever bought uh, a pop record on the on the on the strength of the lyrics. You know, it was a, no record was ever a hit because of the lyrics. I don't, I don't, I still believe that to be the case, mm. uh, 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 except occasionally. So obviously, with you know Bob Dylan and the, the Ramones, the Ramones that were, you know, if ever, they, if ever you want, if ever you needed a, a lyric sheet, it was the Ramones. You know, the, all those songs told a story. Uh, so yeah, there was a general, general uh, interest in uh, in uh, lyrics. You know what I mean? Blimey, uh, anarchy in the UJ and all that, you know, fabulous lyrics. Mm. Terrific, really summing up the, uh, the urban experience. And that's what I related to, you know, because that's, that's what my poems were all about, you know, about life in the city. And as, as a poet, one adopts positions, you know what I mean? You, you know what I mean? When you, when you use the word I, yeah. you know, you're pretending to be somebody else. Yeah. It's a work of art, you know, it ain't like real life poetry. Yeah. You know, most poets lead very sedentary, you know, if I'm anything to go by, very sedentary lives. So very little of what we write is actually from it. Well, I'm, I must speak for myself here. I mean, obviously, I don't know too many poets, so I can't speak for them. But uh, my stuff is very, very, very little of it is written from direct experience. Yeah. You just look at something that's going on and write yourself in in the first person and deal with it in a poetical way. And I suppose it was happening around you, right, at the time? Yeah, you kind, yeah, you kind of, you know, but, you know, re realistically, you know, poets are very, you know, write, the writing of poetry is a very contemplative, reflective thing to do. Mm. I've heard Especially you say if you want it, to, if you if you want if you want if you're crafting it in such a way as to give the impression of urgency and speed. Yeah, <laughs> you know it takes a lot of attention to do. You know you have to. You know what I mean? Attention to the details of language to convey this. Uh, yeah, to convey this. Uh, you know, urban experience really quite painstaking. Yeah, similarly to Hendrix, I think Hendrix sort of talks about how he could only ever imagine becoming a guitarist once he had found that and that's what he was good yeah. at and i think you've said before you could only imagine being yeah becoming a poet yeah that's, that's right what what do you imagine you might have done if you hadn't i always think oh. about that with hendrix i think what he might have done if he hadn't become a guitarist well i did do other things i mean you know, I've, all not, I've not always been uh, in the fortunate position of being able to make a living out of poetry you know not, not, you know, so I have had jobs. I can't, I can't, I can't think what I would have been. <laughs> I suppose that proves it, really, doesn't it? That proves it, yeah. Yeah, you're yeah, proving your point. Yeah, yeah, I, can't, <laughs> I really can. Ever since I remember, it's always been my aim. It's yeah. been to, uh, to be a, make a living out of writing. 
Yeah. And you know, if you write poetry, the only way to convey it to, to the public is by publicly reciting it. In my, you know, there's any other any other method is substandard. You know, you, mm. it has to sound right. I, I, I believe it's a, a phonetic medium. Without a doubt, if, I, if I'm hard and fast about anything that I put around poetry, it's that you should hear it. Yeah, definitely. And if you buy a book of poetry, you should read it aloud. Yes. <laughs> with yours, though, did you did you ever write a poem with it? Because some of yours have been put to music and you released albums. Did you have it in mind that they would be put to music or was it always meant to be, you know, actual you reciting them? Yeah, no, it was always going to be stand standalone thing yeah. uh, with me. Uh, and putting music to it was was never my idea. Uh, however, you know, having done so, it seemed like, a, you know, I was talked into it. I, I, I didn't have a good argument against it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have a good argument against it. But uh, in retrospect, I, you know, I, I think I'm better off on, on my own, you know, because, uh, you know, you're at various speed. You know, I mean, uh, when, when you're reciting poetry, you know, you have to be able to say God. And, uh, and then uh, at certain points, and then uh, yeah. take take your foot off the pedal for a little while, and things like this. You know, the dynamics are uh, very much spur of the moment when we're writing poetry, and, uh, and quite rightly so. You know, it's like, and that's what that's what makes it what makes every show on my tour a different experience entirely. You know, part of what's been going on between me and Johnny Green in the car on the way there finds its way onto the stage and. Every night is a unique thing. It is for me anyway, and uh, I hope this comes across to the audience. I think it does. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, every night is a fresh night, even though the, the repertoire is seemingly the same. You know, uh, mm. uh, it, it, it just comes out differently each night. You know, some some nights it's slicker than snot on a doorknob, and other nights it's full <laughs> of uh, digressions and uh, upset. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever, whatever you know, it's uh, it, it, we keep it fresh. But I don't think it, it would be like that if I was travelling with a band. You yeah. know, how can you sort of uh, go off on a on a riff or sell any gags when there's a bunch of that stood behind you with, with guitars around the neck who <laughs> <laughs> heard the joke several hundred times before? You know what I mean? It's not very conducive to humour. <laughs> <laughs> so I always, so I think you know that really, you know, I'm better off. I'm a solo performer, you know, and the reason for that is I'm a control freak, mm. you know. But uh, having said that, you know, uh, you know those albums, I'm not putting on anybody off. It, it, it does have its moments, you know, and some of those, some of the things I've done on on, on the albums wouldn't exist. I wouldn't have written those things if there hadn't have been music. Uh, right. you know, the music came first, in other words. Oh, right. And I was required to put some kind of sympathetic uh, verbals on it, mm. and it, it wouldn't have happened if uh, if I if I had taken you know if I had gone down that road. So it's not something I regret or anything, but it's just something. In all honesty, if it had been left up to me, I wouldn't have done it. Wouldn't have happened, yeah. I wouldn't have done it in the first place <clears> because of my control freakery and uh, <laughs> you know my uh, rampant ego, I guess. <laughs> You know, I'll take the blame, the blame or the credit. You know what I mean? It's uh, the book stops here, but you yeah. can't be like that if you're uh, if you're always uh, reproducing uh, yeah. stuff that's on the records. And it was a problem for quite.
quite a while, you know, I would get gigs in, even in foreign countries, and they'd be like, where's the band? <laughs> oh, <laughs> All really? they knew about me was what was on the records, you know what I mean? And it became a bit of a problem, but uh, I always, uh, when I got the band, I got that, well, they had no choice, there I was, there was no band, so, uh, yeah. you know, I, I always kind of pulled it off. It wasn't a negotiation, uh, really, was it? Pardon? It wasn't a negotiation. No, not really. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Too late now. Here I am. There in England. And, uh, you know, yeah. Take it or leave it. But I always kind of came out on came out on top, such uh, wood. But uh, saying that, you know, there, there are certain facts, like especially one that comes to mind is uh, a distant relation on uh, Snap, Crackle and Pop. Oh, yeah. It's a real sort of arpeggiated jingle jangle. It's got Vincent Riley on guitar, so it's very kind of missed it before the event group. Yeah. You know the one I mean? I, yeah, I, I've got that. A family affair. I have that but record, actually. We're in there somewhere. <laughs> Permanent fixtures. People who care. Ranger beware. This is a family affair. That one. It's lovely. It's just a C, A minor, F and G chord progression, but I arpeggiate it. So it's kind of, you know, as I say, yeah. jingle jangle, indie rock. Johnny Marr-esque. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, th I think Vincent played on a couple of Mozart's oh, wow. uh, singles, didn't he? Isn't that him on Swedehead? Oh, is it? Oh, wow. I yeah. think it might be. Yeah, one of those, you know, Dagen and Dave or Swedehead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how how's it been? I just wanted to ask you about your recently recently released autobiography. Did it? I think with any autobiography, I've always been intrigued. Was it difficult to write, especially as someone who is a writer? Um, no, it wasn't. Di <coughs> it wasn't that uh, uh, difficult. It's all in the edit, isn't it? It's the, yeah. In the decisions of what to leave out. I mean, I could write another book, uh, it, it, exactly. You know, another five hundred pages yeah. with some different stories in it. But you know, how much uh, you know, crikey. <coughs> In these busy times, <laughs> but, but actually not so busy times. I don't think I would have. I don't think I'd have got it written so quickly had it not been for the epidemic. Actually, but um, was it difficult to write? No, as I say, I wasn't doing anything else. You know, I had all these yeah. cancelled shows, so uh, no, it wasn't that difficult to write. But it's very difficult to. Uh, all my favourites uh, um, of uh, memoirs. Are, uh, seem to be written through uh, the medium of a rec recorded, uh, a record recorded voice to print. You know, voice to print. Yeah. So I did it that way, and it's the most technological as that I've ever been ever been in my life. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm very I'm a, I'm a technophobe if ever there was one. <laughs> but this, so this was really a step into the 25th century for me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, that sort of slightly 
they outdated hipster slang. You know what I mean? It's charming, charming, you know what I mean? And, yeah. uh, and nobody can be aware of, of how charming they are. You know, nobody could be that self-aware that they could write the way they speak. Another example is, well, the aforementioned Steve Jones's book, Lonely Boy, in the same way, uh, No Blacks, No Dogs, No Irish, the uh, Johnny Rotten memoir, Boys to Print, I Bet You. Yeah. And, and, and one of my favourites is... Uh, I can't remember what it's called now, possibly My Way, because it was uh, written by uh, Paul Anker. Can't recommend it enough. That's a, that's a brilliant memoir. Mm. Paul Anker. Is that how you write your poems as well? No, 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 but I'm tempted. Tempted. No, I write them longhand with a pen. Yeah. <laughs> Back of a sick packet, you know, the, the time honoured. The old fashioned way. The old, the old sick packet. <laughs> menu, the beer map. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? Inspiration. <laughs> I feel like it's a long time since I've seen a beer map. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. I was wondering, John, if you, we've been doing a bit of a quiz with our other guests. It's basically just a choice between, it's pretty simple, between Handel or Hendrix. And uh, with with the other guests, we've been asking them questions about is it Handel's life or something that happened from Hendrix's life. But as someone who's a bit of a lyricist, we thought we might make it a little bit more lyrical for you, I think. So, yeah, this quiz, John, basically, I'm going to read some lines and it's either from a Handel opera or a Jimi Hendrix song. And you have to tell us which one you you reckon that it is. Okay, go for it. (laughs) I'm going to go. Okay, first one. Eternal symbols that shine in radiant light. You are nothing but a mysterious beauty to mortal minds. Is that Handel or Hendrix? Well, it, it, that would have to be in translation if it was Handel, wouldn't it? Yes. What did he write in German? So his early ones are Italian. They're in. Are they? What? Okay. Well, I'm saying that's it. That's Handel. Okay. Next one. Hooray, I awake from yesterday, alive but the war is here to stay. So my love, Katharina, and me decide to take our last walk through the noise to the sea. Katharina, you say? Katharina, yeah. Andor. Okay, last one. Strange, beautiful grass of green with your majestic silver seas, your mysterious mountains I wish to see closer. Oh, bloody uh, now, now, they can't all be handled. <laughs> so I'm going to say the first one is Jimmy now. Okay. And then the other two are handled. I'm going to, um, so for that last one, I've, been, I've, I've missed out the last line. Tell me, if this, oh, on, tell me if this changes your mind. The last line, so it's your mysterious mountains I wish to see closer. May I land my kinky machine? Oh, Jimmy. <laughs> Uh, yeah that one's that one's jimmy so the first one is actually handled so you got it right first time so i'll give you it um from his opera orlando and the second one was hendrix yeah well i thought katarina that's a bit italian isn't it yeah he's quite a poetic guy jimmy though like oh yeah wind cries mary yeah you kidding? Oh, yeah, he's poet, or a poet, 
poetic. I'm not, not a poet, a songwriter, but poetic. Poetic, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah, fabulous, yeah. yeah. Voodoo child. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, smashing. Hey, Joe, but he didn't write Hey, Joe, did he? Tim Rose. Yeah, it's an old blues one, isn't it? It's, it's, no, it's, just, it's, it's not, not that old. Is it's it like not? A guy called, I think it was by a guy called Tim Rose. It was like a, you know, a folky, bluesy sort folky, of, you know. Right. Would have played at Good Stoke City or, you know, that's you know, yeah. a contemporary of Tim Harding. And, Amazing fact, song. The three, they were the three Tims, weren't they? Tim Buckley, Tim Harding, and uh, Tim Rose. Oh, right, okay. Tim Rose also wrote that anti-Vietnam tune, uh, uh, Morning Dew. Oh, right, okay. Take me out in the morning dew. I've not heard that. You know that one. I'll look that one up afterwards. Thought I heard a young man cry, mama. Thought I heard a young man cry. Oh, yeah, I do know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim Rose, yeah, he's the guy that wrote Hey Joe. Oh, right. Yeah, great song, though. Great murder ballad. Yeah, <laughs> one one of the great murder ballads. One of the great murder ballads. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, John, thanks so much for talking to us. Really, pleasure, really cool. kid. All right, catch. Yeah. <laughs> all the best, lad. Yeah, all the best. Thanks, John. Thanks very much for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Hanlon Hendricks in London in partnership with Art Fund. 